Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to the first recharge of 2024. Just talking with Cormac, and we hope it is going to be a better year for the sector and indeed the energy transition than 2023. So without further ado, let me introduce my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, and we'll crack on with some of the news from the last month and some views on what we can expect for 2024. Hi, Cormac. Hi, Happy Matt. New Year. Happy New Year too. Yeah, great to be back again. Let's kick off another battery year, 2024. Yep. It's going to be an interesting one. We obviously had a pretty strong time through to 2022, not such a strong time in 2023. So the big question is what we get for 2024. We had a great um, time in 2022. All good news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not quite the same thing uh, last year, but... I'll always remember 2022. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's sort of been a key aspect of the industry that I've certainly noticed towards the back end of 2023 is a little bit of a slowdown in activity. When we went through the cell factory announcements for December, I really couldn't find anything significant, which is like the first month in... That's what I was going to say to you. When's the last time you can remember a Gigafactory announcement of a a company you never heard of? Exactly. So that's the first time that's happened in, what, 24 months or something. And on top of that, the last couple of Gigafactory announcements that I've seen have been slowdowns, US capacity that's been slowed down. And if that isn't indicative of what's going on in the industry at the moment, I don't know what is. That is the uh, barometer. That is the the point to look at. How many Gigafactories have been announced this week? 2022. You were just, uh, announcements were tripping over each other. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's been a while since I heard a Gigafactory announcement that's not been LG or CATL. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so... Yeah, it, yeah. Is, it is interesting to note. One of the issues behind that is obviously we've seen really over the last sort of six to 12, maybe 18 months or so, this overcapacity emerge, certainly in LFP in China, uh, to a less extent in, in ternary. And I guess really one of the big questions for 2024 is how is that going to sort of impact the industry. We've certainly seen capacity utilization falling throughout the year of 2023. There were initial signs or anecdotal reports that sort of that had increased for some of the bigger producers towards the back end of 2023. Do you think that it would be viable for that to increase substantially? Or do you think capacity utilization is going to stay pretty weak in the Chinese industry? In China, there hasn't been a whole lot of additional capacity announcements either, only breaking ground of previous uh, capacity announcements, you know, or CATL announced eight factories by 2025 additions. What you hear of now is, with the big one, what you hear a lot of is semi-solid. So semi-solid gigafactories going up, again, will be tailored towards certain niche market, probably high-end EVs Mm -hmm. in China. That might actually... You can do it LFP, but most likely for high-end Vs would be NMC. Might upset the uh, Apple cart in terms of LFP in China slightly. And after that, again, it's sodium ion, but not a whole lot of announcements. Um, sodium ion, gigafactories, one or two. Why would there be? I mean, with, with lithium ion prices coming down so low, I mean, 
you don't really need to go so- sodium iron at the moment, I don't think. Well, that was the whole reason we went from NMC to LFP to sodium, right? High yeah. prices. We'll get into it later, but across the board, prices are pretty much depressed, right? I see semi-solids, gigafactories, which would be like what we might see from uh, NEO, what's going into NEO and uh, Prolegium, let's say. Semi-solids, I've been looking into a little bit. Or I used to do it back in my research days. It was just, just basically gel polymer. Something what we see with blue solutions, gel polymer, which has been yeah. around a long time, basically. It's gel polymers, PEO, mixed with uh, LIPF6, more or less, and most basic. The semi-solid we're seeing in China is incorporating solid state inorganic fibers for um, strengthening purposes and, and more of a dry electrode as well. So that's the big thing I've seen. Not so many big LFP announcements like there was towards the end of 2022. So yeah, real slowdown. What has been a lot of announcements actually is graphite. I see graphite yeah. is the major one in the last, say, H2, the twenty twenty two in China. In China, a lot of graphite for natural graphite. So this is this is graphite concentrate or this is spherical graphite? Spherical um, graphite, yeah. Yeah. Okay. CPSG, yeah. Okay. That's interesting because obviously with the moves by the Chinese to regulate exports, there is a perception that there's just not going to be enough spherical graphite coming out of China. And, you know, indeed, if you look at the November export data, spherical graphite exports increased by something like three times, the bulk of that going into Korea. So they're obviously wary about the new sort of export rules, shall we say, even though I understand the Chinese have come out and said that they have granted some export permits. I guess the question is how much in the way of export permits they've granted. So the big guys already have expert permits, right? BTR especially, Shan Shan. China consistently over the years and across many industries tries to weed out, not bad players, but China does have high, high industry standards across many industries. And they do it in the recycling industry, especially as well. They have these white lists. And if you're not on the list, you can still do business, but you're not a preferred supplier, let's say. So it mm. looks like they're trying to weed out these substandard uh, producers. Right. Right. You don't think that this is a way of saying to the West, look, hands off our semis, otherwise you won't get your graphite? Well, as they say, many countries have graphite restrictions, namely for the case of the nuclear industry, right? That's where it all Mm -hmm. started. They're not doing anything other countries aren't doing. From our point of view, from my point of view, it certainly is a a wake-up call for the Western graphite industries. And really is a surprise to me that after the initial sort of run-up in share prices, when this news came out, we then didn't see anything else come out after that. And uh, you are sort of sitting there going, why, oh, why are we not seeing more capital flow into these Western graphite projects, given that there is a risk that we may not be able to source, you know, Chinese material? uh, Graphite, in in my opinion, graphite is one of the easier gaps for the western world to fill you know it's it's not that sophisticated a process gets a bit more tricky after you spheridize it the coating of course a little bit more tricky but that is if you've got an appetite for it i mean it's 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 really interesting because you see a lot of successful spherical graphite manufacturing capacity in china and to some extent in japan but we haven't really seen a lot of successful capacity in the western world i guess to some extent that's because you know, a lot of the developers have tried to reinvent the wheel. So they tried to say, look, you know, we'll try and do it without HF. 
trying to do it with uh, you know with thermal purification and 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 stuff like this and and maybe you know the western world just needs to say look fine we'll put in plain vanilla technology and then we'll worry about going clean over time yeah there's a few ways of doing it of course purifying graphite but you've written about it graphite mine once you try and concentrate graphite you're only pulling 30% of of the quantity of ore you extracted whether it's large flake or, or fines and china's got markets for all the product that are coming out of the graphite mine where i'm not sure what you're going to do with the other 100,000 tons of byproduct a western mine might have that's certainly an issue and i think that's one of the reasons why it's been a struggle to to open up mines in the Western world. I mean, the only new mines over the last couple of years are in Africa. You know, I've said before, it's not really the mining that's an issue. It, it's more the midstream. And it'd be go- very interesting to see how that goes over the next little while. And of course, it's very difficult to raise money for midstream with share prices through the floor as they are at the moment. So, um, oh, yeah. So that's the other thing. The, the price of graphite is a yeah. big issue. From what I've seen in China, there's going to be a lot more capacity coming on in the next 18 months. Oh, Uh, you're just full of good news. It's good for us in China. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you're being Chinese now. You're not going to be Uh, European. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. What am I Chinese? Okay, cool. Moving swiftly on, and and while you are Chinese, I, I guess we should talk about the U.S. announcement of what constitutes a foreign entity of concern when it comes to the IRA. And that was the, you know, for me, the primary news item in the raw material space that came out in December, this clarification. And I understand from press that the Chinese are, are pretty happy with the result of that announcement. I was in, you know, I came out in the first, I was in Shanghai in the fifth, presenting it to Chinese audience. I don't know if I was going to get out of the place alive. But <laughs> went down well from my discussions with the Chinese. Yeah, they they weren't totally upset by it. They knew they were going to be on it. But as, again, it's been written, they're written about, it's not a closed door. That's very interesting because I'm not sure if that's going to be politically acceptable in the US, that it's not a closed door, particularly in election year. We'll have to keep an eye on that. From looking at what's going on in terms of investment, in terms of the Chinese-Korean joint ventures in Korea, some of the joint ventures have been announced in Morocco and Europe. It looks like the Americans have been successful in deterring Chinese direct investment in the US, but they've not been successful in deterring Chinese investment elsewhere in free trade countries that can get into the US supply chain. I think we'll have to see how viable that is from a political point of view for the US going forward. Yeah, you know, my discussions with the Chinese battery manufacturers is, you know, these uh, IRA incentives expire in 2030. Uh, So they're more or less going to carry on with their plans, outlast the IRA, basically. That's interesting. I think one of the very interesting trends of 2023 is that everybody has obviously been sounding the death knell for EV sales growth really since the middle of the year. And it hasn't been slowing down. It's been pretty easily banging along at 30, 35% year-on-year growth rates. Anecdotally, December was pretty strong in China as well. But one of the sectors that is doing outstandingly well is uh, stationary storage. And there are a number of reports out in December. There was the Woodmac report on the US. There's BNEF has come out with a really interesting report. 
forecasting on the stationary storage space. And it is amazing the rate of growth of stationary storage installations this year. I mean, totally outpacing what we see on the EV side. Have you got any views on that? Yeah, it's going to be 2024. China, anyway, is, is forecasted. You know, China's the biggest stationary storage market now. Mm. US used to be on the, until quite recently. The US still is encountering a number of problems it's always had. Grid connections. And then, of course, they have import tariffs on Chinese batteries, inverters, and supply chain issues. So it was kind of relatively straightforward for China to overtake the U.S. in terms of energy storage location. But the Chinese deployment, sorry, the Chinese grid infrastructure is, is a, lot, a lot different to U.S. The opportunities to deploy, other than this is all backed by government incentives, are a bit more difficult. but and, uh, and the Chinese government changed the trading conditions for, for ESS about, what, 12 to 18 months ago, didn't they, to, to make it more economically viable? Yeah. And I think that's made a, a big difference. And I mean, I don't want to sort of disclose the BNEF data, but certainly from their data, it was they're implying that the average cost of an ESS system in China was something like 50% lower on a kilowatt hour basis than a US system. I mean, that's material in anyone's business. That's a material reduction. When, when, when the projects go out, five or six uh, big companies like BYD and, and CATL compete. I think the lowest price I've seen now is about 60 USD per kilowatt hour for a Chinese project. Uh, competitive bidding is much lower. And I think what was very interesting about ESS is, is certainly if you look at the ESS battery output, it was very strong in the first half of the year, but it faded off in the second half of the year. Do yeah. you think that 2024 in one installation, so demand and, and two supply, are going to grow as, as heavily as 2023? It depends. Are you talking about North America or? Oh, China, uh, sorry. China, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's supposed to double this year. So uh, total capacity uh, up to 55 gigawatt hours from 24. Wow. Okay. That's pretty sort of substantial. And also from the point of view of, of, of Chinese of cell output as well, yeah. it's starting to have an impact, not just around the margins of cell output compared to electric vehicles, but, but be, you know, quite substantial. It's great news for the LFP makers, right? NMCs totally depend on an EV sales, EV adoption, where LFP have both EV sales, an extra boost in the arm of ESS as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's great news for them. Obviously, that's been an issue because the cell inventories and LFP have, uh, I'm not going to say crept up, rocketed up in the last six months or so. We've had a huge build in, in LFP cell inventories. And, you know, my contention is that if ESS demand growth is so large, it could help to, to clear out some of these LFP cell inventories. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, that is... Um... It might even the inventories might even be bigger in demand, but over the long term, yeah, uh, I think that's one one option. We just need to see some sort of, you know, reduction in these inventories. I mean, they don't need to go back to zero, but just to see some sort of reduction so that we can start to see capacity utilization increase in battery plants, then that increases capacity utilization in cathode, and and that then feeds through into raw materials. But if we don't get that, that's a problem. I think. You know, I'm wondering about these cells. Constantly, uh, 
the LFP manufacturers are constantly improving either the chemistry of the cell or the format of the cell. So I'm wondering, you know, if the cell is over 12 months old, would uh, EV, if this is primary for EV, for EV markets, would they want the most recent tech rather than ones that are from the previous generation, which could go to ESS then? The LFP cells for energy storage and ESS are different. EVs are different. Yeah. So, um, different form factor, yeah. And different chemistry as well. So you want uh, thicker electrodes to give you more capacity for energy storage. You don't need to charge them as quickly, so you can use you can set up your electrodes differently. And that's why another reason we don't see too much NMC in the uh, ESS market. Technically, they're different, and some would view not interchangeable. But I'm sure for the right price, <laughs> some of them could be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, I mean, we must be sort of approaching the right price. I'm not sure that cell prices can go materially below what they are at the moment. But you know, what's happening now is uh, for energy storage, right? That's consolidating as well, where CATL, they still do it, of course, provide cells and BYD provide cells. But now they're also competing with the integrators that used to supply in US and Europe. They're bidding for the same projects and sending over a whole container, a you know, BSS uh, functional mm -hmm. container. I mean, on the ESS, I mean, one of the, 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 the issues with the ESS but, that we yeah. sort of tracked over time yeah. is that lithium-ion is very much dominating. What about long duration? Do you ever hear people talking about long duration in China, or is it still pretty much off the radar screen? A big vanadium flow went into... Um, so, yeah, they, they like flow batteries still. It's not technically long duration, but mm. uh, quite a large... I think it was uh, 20 megawatt hour... Canadian flow battery was activated quite recently. You don't hear about it too much. I don't have my ear eyes closely on the ESS market in the last couple of months, but I don't hear much about long energy or long duration storage. Yeah, I mean, it's still sort of sitting in the sidelines, really, and it's sort of the bridesmaid and never quite the bride. We've been talking about it now for what, five, six years, and it, it's still not quite sort of breaking out into the wider industry. Most of the if you're talking about long duration energy storage, yes, the tech sector is still dominated by a couple of uh, US companies. You got the mm. um, Form Energy with the uh, iron air battery, I believe. And then you have uh, some nickel based chemistries unrelated to lithium that look yeah. quite promising. I'm very much hopeful that that can take off the RFBs, chromium flow, iron flow batteries. Yeah, well, yeah but can you sort of take off reasons. going forward. One of the big reasons wasn't used in long duration is because of the price and it's a lot lower now than than then so maybe so lithium's crept up from two hour storage to four hour storage to eight hour storage and but, but with lithium if you want to go to eight hour storage you've basically got to use what three times the amount of batteries to well, generate that duration yeah in certain sectors in the u.s that's where nmc still is used in yeah. uh, uh to keep the size down but yeah well if you're in the um yeah, yeah, so as the price is dropping, it's kind of... So, so in a low-price environment, long, it makes yeah. sense to do that. But if the price ever starts to pick up again, then, you know, it becomes less, then, less yeah, attractive. You, you got like a gigawatt-hour battery sitting in a field doing nothing. And when you can get more value out of it. I mean, they, yeah. these sort of things. So you want something of low value, storing energy for long periods yeah. of time. And I mean, obviously, ESS really took off last year because we had this huge sort of renewable push in China as well. So... If we get that again, it's you know it's very positive, and I think the point that you made about the infrastructure and the planning situation in the U.S. and Europe, you've got to feel that Asia is sort of taking over as 
the driver of ESS, not just China, but Australia and other Asian countries are, are able to cut through the sort of planning issues that the US and Europe has. And again, you know, we find the US and Europe being slowed down by bureaucracy, basically, which allows Asia to sort of lap it. Yeah, we'll see what happens in the UK. But, uh, you know, this is one of the big problems of the Europe- European Union, right, as uh, getting everyone to agree. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, we touched on EV sales, uh, another pretty robust month in November, quite a strong month in December. One of the things that that has sort of come out of left field a little bit this year, though, is the greater predominance of plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, PHEVs in China. Those have been realizing pretty strong market share into the Chinese market. Any sort of views on that? Yeah. Uh, again, it's all driven by uh, BYD. It's quite interesting. So BYD's top-selling car is a PHEV. So, you know, you're hearing all month how BYD is a bigger EV maker than uh I know you have you you fa- you factor in PHEVs as EVs pure, yeah, but not hybrids. But in fact, hybrids yeah. not as EVs. But just to put some numbers on that, in in yeah. November, which is the last month for which we've got data, thirty three percent of my definition of EVs, as you as yeah. you put it, were PHEVs in China. Thirty yeah. percent of them in Europe and seventeen percent in the US. Now the US is quite a tiddly market, but you know Europe's been as high as 45% of EVs being plug-in hybrids. Could China go to that level? Other than BYD, there's not there's a couple others, but not many uh like in the PHEV game. So BYD was taking 100% of the market. In China, it's the biggest automaker right now, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh biggest uh of the Chinese if, brands. If you take if you take my definition, it's the biggest EV maker in the world. You know, it's Wiping the floor with Tesla at the moment. So, um, you think yeah. Elon's going to go for PHEVs? Sorry? You think Elon will, uh, <laughs> will, will go back to the drawing board? And, I, uh... I don't think so. I don't think so. But I, I think that Tesla's got to really start focusing on this Model 2, the lower cost BEV, because at the moment, it's been very clear for the last 12 to 18 months that, that buyers are pretty price elastic. One of the big issues that we've seen is obviously with the price discounts that that we've seen from Tesla and the Chinese buyers, sellers rather, is actually putting off buyers. So it's putting off buyers of of EVs because they don't want to come in and buy something and then find out, you know, two weeks later that the price gone down by 10%. So people are actually sitting out of the market. And on top of that, fleet demand, which has been a big driver of, of EV sales in Europe and the US, fleet users like Sixth. And, and Hertz have come out and said, look, you know, we can't afford to um, to necessarily buy these cars from Tesla anymore because they're getting discounted so so much. There's a, a residual value impact on our businesses. So I think for me, it's really important that OEMs start producing lower priced vehicles if they want to access the mass markets. And, and I mean, there's a reason why EVs have taken off in China. If you look at the median price for the top 10 selling EVs in China, it's low. I mean, it's probably half the price that it is in Europe and and the US. So if we want to get into the mass market for EVs, we've got to have some mass market priced EVs out there. Tesla doesn't and 
very few of the European OEMs do. And and by the way, if the European OEMs do, the chances are they're made in China, so they're going to get tariffed by the EU. So I'm not quite sure where the EU's what the EU's thinking about from that point of view. Yeah. Still under investigation, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think everybody knows where that's going to go, <laughs> realistically. The interesting thing about Tesla and mass market car, I'm not sure the Model 2 would work in US, right? An example of a mass market car in the US, like the smallest car there is probably a, a Toyota Camry, which is... I think it's the Toyota here, Camry is the mass yeah. market vehicle in the US, yeah. Which is a big car in yeah. mid-size anyway. So... The whole Tesla Model uh, S, you know, the original cars were designed for California and Route 1, 10-hour drive, San Francisco to LA, the little bubble they were in there. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure there'd be a market for Model 2. I think that's why they brought out the Cybertruck. I think that's why they went wow. first with yeah. the Cybertruck, because obviously the pickup truck is is a key vehicle in the US market. But if they want to compete in Europe and Asia... They're going to need to bring out something smaller. Not saying that they don't compete in Europe and Asia, because obviously they're the, they're the top-selling brand in or OEM in Europe, and you know certainly one of the top-selling brands in China. But going forward, they've got quite a stale model lineup, and if they want to get mass market volumes, like the Wuling Mini and and the the BYD, I think it's the Song, isn't it? Then they're going to have to go with a lower price vehicle. Yeah. Well, maybe they're not going for the mass market. I don't know. You know, BMW is not going for the mass market. <laughs> BMW is definitely not going for mass market. Mercedes. In one breath, they're a premium car maker, right? And the next breath, they're uh, BYD. I mean, which market are they in? Yeah. I mean, don't really know. Anyway, I guess we'll yeah. find out. Anything else from you? Just on the Cybertruck, there was a couple of buys from London on the... Uh, deposit list and and then they found out the cyber u.s cyber truck you can't drive around london it's too wide i guess <laughs> your uh inner city it was at the green zone it, yeah it won't fit through the uh is there barriers or a bollards or something down there oh in the um city of london yeah yeah <laughs> interesting and probably wouldn't fit in parking spaces either so a lot of guys had to cancel their orders apparently they're going to make a eu or london size version of the cyber truck I don't think they should waste their time. I don't think there are going to be too many people that are going to want to to buy a, a truck in, in the UK. We have a very, very low truck sales. Yeah, and you got a good train infrastructure, so. You might say that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to disagree, but maybe just talk a little bit about sort of raw material prices. Obviously, it's been a pretty torrid six months or so for raw material prices, lithium in particular. I um, get a lot of questions about, Matt, where do you think raw material prices is going to be next year? I uh, Really, really difficult answer. Uh, my answer would be um, read this month's issue of Battery Materials Review, where I put my views down. But I will say that it's really inventories. So I think there's there's two things that we need to be aware of in the industry. There's what the industry-wide inventories look like, and there's also where the marginal cost of production is. And on the bottom end of pricing, it really comes down to the marginal cost of production. So when we were talking about the marginal cost of production this time last yeah. year, we were talking about 20 to $25 a kilo because spodumene concentrate prices were still elevated. Now with spodumene concentrate prices sub 1000 you're talking about a marginal cost of production around probably $10 a kilo. 
so substantially lower. But we are starting to see production outages because of low prices. So obviously, we saw the news that that, that Core is is um, stopping production earlier this month, rather. We've also seen, well, my feeling is that there's at least one, maybe two other spodumene concentrate assets in production at the moment, which are loss making at these prices. So they may very well come out of the market over the next couple of months. There's a lot of column inches about Chinese lipidolite. A lot of brokers saying, well, operating costs of of um, of assets are actually closer to ten to fifteen dollars a kilogram, not to twenty to twenty five dollars a kilogram. I would say to those brokers, have a look at the capacity utilization of of Chinese lipidolite at the moment, because I would suggest that probably about fifty percent of lipidolite production capacity in China is currently idled, which means it's yeah. not making money at these prices. So. You know, if that's the case, then it must have a marginal cost of production much higher. Keep yeah. an eye on marginal production costs and keep an eye on inventories. While yeah. inventories are building, we're not going to get any fundamental recovery in demand. If inventories start to come off, that's when we'll start to see restocking and that's when we'll start to see prices prices recovering. And obviously, inventories are changing on a on a weekly basis at the moment. So those are the key things to to have a look at if you're if you're tracking raw material prices. I got a question for you, Matt, because you've been in the mining business a long time, or uh, watching the mining business. I can't imagine you with a bucket and arse, pickaxe and a shovel. But um, I've got a uh, nice geological hammer. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, okay. A lot of companies are getting into the battery materials business, and essentially, it's a metals business at the end of the day, and, and there's cycles. So you talk about it all the time, and sometimes. You're not making money. It's a loss-making exercise. But you're such a giant, you know, Anglo-American or somebody like that giant mining company, you can survive the cycles. A lot of people I speak to expect to be making money constantly, profit constantly. Um, so what's the difference between this industry and the bigger industries like copper where there's downturns, and but these companies aren't going to the wall? Well, copper, I mean, certain copper assets do go to the wall in a downturn. It's just that you, you don't hear about them. So yeah. In a copper downturn, you've got a cost curve just like we've got in lithium, and you know prices will go will go low, and sometimes they'll they'll go into the cost curve. And yeah. if they go into the cost curve, then the high cost operations will will stop producing. There hasn't been, I mean, copper is a terrible example because there hasn't been really a proper downturn in copper for 10, 15 years. But certainly, you know, in aluminium, in zinc, in nickel, in manganese, which are all primary production commodities, we've seen assets being idled because of low prices. And that's very much the way that the industry is in the lithium. If you want to have an asset or you want to be in production all the way through the cycle in lithium, then you have to own a low-cost asset. So something like green bushes in Western Australia or Atacama in Chile or some of the the high-quality brine assets. If you want to your asset to be in production through the cycle, you've got to have a first quartile asset. If you have a third or fourth quartile asset, then you're going to take losses during a down cycle. But obviously, the trade-off is, as an investor, if you're invested in a high-cost asset and you're in an up cycle, then because of operating leverage, that stock will outperform. Operating gearing, that, that stock will outperform. Whereas obviously in the down market, if you have a high-cost stock, 
it will underperform. Okay, that explains it. No easy answer to why these people, uh, I shouldn't say people, <laughs> some of these companies I speak to can't face the harsh reality that you might get caught up in the cycle. and it get, get them to read my um, How to Invest in Hard Rock Lithium book that will uh, explain yeah. about cycles, explain about cost curves, explain about operating leverage to material prices and, and all the rest of it. Fantastic. I have a look at myself. <laughs> yeah, you do that. <laughs> and you can pay for it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's a Christmas present, is it? Late yeah. Christmas present. Yeah. Okay. Great. I think that is probably a good place to stop. So I'm going to say um, thanks very much to Cormac and uh, we will speak next month. Yeah. Great to catch up with you again, Matt. Yeah. Talk to you in February. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for January. As always, you can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed and indeed many more that we don't have time to discuss on a monthly basis in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.